Hey, leaders, before we jump into today's show, a really heartfelt thank you. So I interact with a lot of the guests on this podcast, not only when we do the show, but otherwise. And this one piece of feedback I've heard is so overwhelming, I wanted to share it with you. I hear from guest after guest that you are the best audience. And they keep telling me, I show up on all of these shows, some of the biggest shows in the world. No audience responds the way your audience does, Carrie. And I wanted to let you know that when you DM them, when you buy their books, when you encourage them, when you hit them up on social media, when you share this show, uh, they are noticing and they love being on this podcast. And that's because of you. We've had books uh, hit the bestseller list because you responded. We have had people get book deals who were guests because you responded. And you know what? I just want to say thank you. I really believe I have the best audience in the world. That's you. And I wanted to say thank you. And I want you to know our guests are noticing as well on this podcast. So thank you for being that awesome audience. And now to today's episode. The Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Today's episode is brought to you by the On The Rise newsletter. That's my Friday newsletter I send out to almost 90,000 leaders. You can go to ontherisenewsletter.com and subscribe today. You won't be disappointed. And by Glue. Do you know a lot of churches make mistakes when they connect with new visitors? Well, Glue would like to help you prevent them. They've got a free resource called The Five Outreach Mistakes Church Leaders Make. You can get it at get.glue.us slash mistakes. Well, I know my team and I have been waiting for this episode for a long time. We're so excited to bring Sharon McMahon to the podcast today. A lot of you know her from social. She's Sharon Says So. And as we head into yet another election year in the next year, it's going to be really important to try to stay somewhere in the middle and not at the crazy polls. We are going to talk about how to get people to change their minds on, well, really controversial subjects like abortion, gun control, and politics just in time for Thanksgiving a few months from now, right? How to respond to angry people with extreme opinions and how group and tribal identity have shifted. So Instagram sensation Sharon McMahon is with us today and uh, she is a former high school government and law teacher who earned a reputation as America's government teacher amidst the historic 2020 election. And she had some viral posts on Instagram that really educated the general public on political misinformation. And through a simple mission to share nonpartisan information about democracy, Sharon has amassed hundreds of thousands of followers online, affectionately called the Governors, that's her tribe. And they look to her for truth and logic in a society plagued by bias and conspiracy. So if you're one of the people, and that's about like 90% of people who are somewhere in the middle, I think you're gonna love, love, love this. And maybe Maybe if you've gone down a rabbit hole or two, give it a listen. Give it a listen. So anyway, going to get to that in a minute. I have got an email newsletter that I started earlier this year. It's delivered every Friday. It goes to almost 90,000 leaders, and I am very excited to share it with you. I share some of the most relevant articles, uh, videos, podcasts that I find a book recommendation every week, and it's called On the Rise. And when you sign up, I'll send you a sample newsletter right away so you can get a taste of it. If it's for you, hey, keep them coming. If not, easy to unsubscribe to. Just go to ontherisenewsletter.com. You'll get curated content direct from me every Friday about faith, culture, the future church, and more. That's ontherisenewsletter.com. 
ontherisenewsletter.com. And church leader, are you making mistakes? Hey man, that is my leadership journey. I've made so many mistakes. Well, York Moore, the president and CEO of the Coalition for Christian Outreach, has a new article called The Five Outreach Mistakes Church Leaders Make, and I want to tell you about it. In the article, he hits the nail on the head about the common pitfalls that a lot of church leaders make when it comes to connecting with people who are exploring their faith. And then, of course, he's got some gracious, helpful tips on how to correct that. So if you're interested, you can get the full article at get.glue.us slash mistakes. And there you can unlock the secrets to successful outreach and deepen the connections with those in your community who are eager to learn about, well, the Christian faith in Jesus. So go to get.glue.us slash mistakes. Glue is spelled G-L-O-O, get.glue.us slash mistakes. And now my conversation with Sharon Says So, also known as Sharon McMahon. Sharon, welcome to the podcast. Mm, Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So uh, my staff insisted I have you on the show. You've got a bunch of raving fans, which is great. And I'm so glad I listened to them, started tracking with you. You're really helping change the debate. So let me start here. If you went to a cocktail party and had to explain to somebody what you did, how would you do that? (laughs) That is the million dollar question. I have wrestled with that question for a while now. And in fact, I was at a cocktail party a couple months ago and a lot of people didn't know me and I was faced with that exact problem. It's a difficult profession to define, you Uh know, because it sounds like, you know, like, well, I have a popular Instagram account. Well, that's, that does, it's not descriptive. That's, that's, could be a million different people, right? Like I could be a person making videos of cats, (laughs) <laughs> um, and, which are great, by the way. I love videos. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a podcaster, um, as as you are. So I'm very familiar with the ins and outs of doing that. I'm going to be an author next year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have private groups um, that I run and book clubs and all those kinds of things. But really at the heart of what I do is um, government, law, politics, education from a nonpartisan fact-based perspective. Um, Rather than telling people what to think about something, I try to help people learn how to think about something. That's a good answer. You know, I've heard it said that if you want a job that is sort of recession-proof, market-proof, and AI-proof, it has to be really difficult to describe to people (laughs) because I find myself in that situation too. You go one level and they're like, wait, well, how does that work? Like, what exactly do you do again? And it's like, well, you know, yeah, I get it. But okay, what were you doing before Sharon Says So Mm. blew up on Mm -hmm. Instagram? Well, I have been a government and law teacher for many, many years. That's the basis. That's a foundation for all of my knowledge. You know, like my academic and teaching career is the foundation for that. But I've also owned two businesses. So I love business. I love talking about business. I sold one of my businesses. um, And it's, you know, like I... I've done, I've, it's run the gamut from working in a public high school classroom to, you know, uh, building a business literally from, you know, the ground up. What were those businesses? Mm. One of them, I hand dyed yarn for I read about that. Yeah. For knitting, uh, crocheting, sold it all over the world, uh, eventually became like one of the largest hand dyeing studios in the world. It's a very niche industry, unless you're in it. And then, of course, it seems like the only industry. Um, And then I've also been a professional photographer. 
Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hand dyeing yarn. They say the riches are in the niches, but mm-hmm. that is that like you're a crafty type person or how did you stumble into that? Yeah. I mean, I, I started learning to knit when I was 12, so I am oh. crafty. Uh, and I, this is always an interesting Genesis story of how I got into hand dyeing yarn. I started doing it because somebody insisted that I must try. Um, mm. I had no intention of doing it. Somebody was right. like, you should try that. I think you'd be good at it. And I was like, but the business I don't. or the hand dyeing? The, the both, both. Oh, okay. Like, learn this skill uh, and then you can do something with it. And I was like, but I don't want to. And, um, and she kept pressing me on it. I really think you need to try it. So I tried it to prove her wrong, uh, to be like, nope, see, I'm terrible at it. And it turns out I wasn't. (laughs) I have to ask as a total, I've not knit a stitch in my entire life, but my grandmother knit a lot. So I have fond memories of her knitting when I was a young child. Mm -hmm. Uh, What, what is the advantage? Because I'm, I, I have no idea. What is the advantage to hand dyed yarn versus, you know, from a loom or a, a, a shop, like mm-hmm. doing it, quote, with machines or professionally yeah, or whoever yeah, else they, they would it, dye they it? Do it. They commercially dye it. Yep. That's so, the word. Com- yeah, yep. commercial dyeing is, um, it's a little bit like getting, it's lovely, but it's a little bit mm-hmm. like getting a box of lean cuisine and microwaving it. Right. It's going to be very consistent every single time, but it's going to be very limited in what you can actually get out of the product. Whereas hand dyeing yarn is like uh, going to a five star restaurant and having something made um, fresh out of what's seasonally available and uh, with the skill and knowledge of the chef preparing it for you. So it's a very different uh, knitting experience for the person who is who's actually using your product. So you can tell the difference. Mm-hmm. There you go. Mm-hmm. Good to know. Okay, that was a little excursus, but uh, mm-hmm. let's keep moving. Yeah. So uh, teaching, do you have a background in law or you got some degrees in politics and law or how mm-hmm. did that work out? Because that was the springboard into what you're doing. Mm-hmm. My, yep, my background in law is in the academic study of constitutional law and in teaching oh, wow. those kinds of classes. I'm not an attorney. Um, okay. I So I have a pretty solid uh, background in like the Supreme Court and the history of the Constitution, mm-hmm. things of that nature. Mm-hmm. But if you need me to like look over your contracts, I'm a, I, don't call me. You know what I mean? Well, don't, I'm not well, going to write a poly, up your Poli-sci background for my undergrad, poli-sci history, and then, and then law school. I love constitutional law. Mm. I don't know if you ever heard of Peter Hogg, but he mm-hmm. taught at the school I went to, like internationally renowned scholar who died eventually with the Supreme Court of Canada, but I love constitutional law and mm. U.S. constitutional law. Really, really fascinating how a written document governs us. Mm. And that it's a, such an old one that we are mm-hmm. still uh, making work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you taught that for a number of years. Mm-hmm. And then and then what happened? Let's get into the Genesis story of Sharon says so. Mm. Well, what happened was I wanted to move back to my hometown, uh, which is in, it's a pretty small town in northern Minnesota. And unlike the D.C. suburbs where I had been most recently teaching, um, where it is really, really difficult to even make the paper cut uh, to get hired as as a government teacher unless you have a significant amount of education and experience. Sure. Um, Coming home to my hometown, it meant that um, I knew that I was not going to get a teaching job here because I have mm. too much education and experience. I'm too expensive 
on the ah. the step and lane scale that they pay teachers with. So I moved my yarn business and some of my employees. I moved moved it back home, moved it back to my hometown. Um, and I'll spare you all the little ins and outs and gory details. Mm -hmm. But really, the genesis of Sharon Says So is was the year 2020. Um, it is when so many businesses and states experienced closures, and um, that was the case in, in my state as well um, when I was running a photography studio at that point. And people don't want their picture taken with masks on, understandably. That's nobody's cutest <laughs> yeah. look. No one is uh -huh. the cutest under those circumstances. Um, and then additionally... My husband was in stage five kidney failure and needed a kidney transplant. And at the beginning of the pandemic, people who were in kidney failure had a 30% mortality rate from COVID. It was extremely dangerous for people who um, had his physical uh, limitations. So uh, what I found as a, as a result of 2020 was that I had more time on my hands than I had literally ever had since I was approximately nine years old. I've had mm. a job of some kind since I was 12. Um, I never had this much time in high school, college, any time in my career. I suddenly had uh, time to do something other than what I had been doing. Um, and that gave me a chance to sort of look around and see where I might where I might be needed. Hmm. Well, I'm sorry to hear about your husband. Um, mm. That's that's a real challenge. Mm -hmm. What happened though? What made you go online, like on your Instagram account? Was there mm. a, a catalyzing event? Mm -hmm. Why Instagram? I mean, there are a lot of different directions you could have taken your impulse to teach mm -hmm. in a nonpartisan way. Mm -hmm. What what happened next? Mm. You know, I really believe in in meeting people where they are, mm. right, and. Meeting people where they are m means meeting people on social media. That's where a huge percentage yeah. of people get their information and news now. Um, and there was a genesis or there was a, a starting event, which is I saw a friend's uh, Facebook post that was about the upcoming 2020 election. And there was a man who commented on her post. Um, and the comment was something to the effect of, when um, everybody leaves uh, the Electoral College in Washington, D.C. And I was like, mm, hold up. <laughs> Nobody, nobody's flying into D.C., right? Hold up. The Electoral College is an idea. It's not a place. You can't go mm -hmm. there. You can't go to there. There is no, like, I'm here outside the Electoral College. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's not a thing. Uh -huh. So... I decided in that moment that I could either reply back to this man and be like, actually, the Electoral College is not a place. It's a it's a thing. It's an idea. There's They meet in all 50 states. I could have done that, but I do have a pretty firm policy about not arguing with strangers on the internet. <laughs> so I decided instead that I would just make a little short, simple, nonpartisan explainer video about how the Electoral College worked thinking that, hey, if my friends ever want to use this video, they can just drop a link to it in their comments. And then mm. they don't have to argue with strangers either. Yeah. So that was really like my first impulse was like, I'll just make a little video and then people can refer back to it if they want to. So that's it. You were that's already it. on Instagram. How many followers did you have at the time? I had 
about 12,000 followers, mostly from oh, so running my decent, local business. Mm-hmm. Decent presence. But mm-hmm. again, a lot of these would have been yarn people, right? Or photography, my photography Or business. photography yeah. people. Mm-hmm. So you're telling photography people, yarn people, and random friends and acquaintances, oh yeah, this is, this is how the Electoral College works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what happened next? Slowly, I mean, I started making more videos each week. I asked people in my audience, what do you want to learn about this week? Like, leave me a comment and I'll see what I can do. People wanted the answers to very, very basic government questions. Things about like, Hmm. who will be the president if the first four people in the line of succession die? What would happen if a president refused to leave office? And they Mm. were like, no, I'm staying. You can't kick me out of this White House. I'm staying here. What would happen? Things that people sometimes wonder about, but it's it's difficult to find the answer to if you don't know where you're looking. So I just started surveying people, asking them, what do you want? What do you want me to make a video about this week? One of the videos I made um, was about masks, actually. Mm. Um, And people wanted to know about things like, is it um, permissible for governors to, you know, like how, how can a governor tell you you have to wear masks? We're talking about that, that topic, but again, not telling you if the, um, the governor should be telling you to wear masks, just talking about the, where do they get the authority from? Constitutionally. Yes. Are they empowered to do that? That's right. Great. Um, so that's, I just started making videos and they started getting popular. All right. So you started getting a lot more engagement at that point. And then let's take the narrative further. Just mm. tell us what happens. How many followers do you have now? Over a million. Wow. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. Um, you know, it started with local news media. And, mm. you know, my my previous business, I was relatively well known in the community. I knew a lot of people. And so uh, when other people in the community saw what I was doing, they were like, this is interesting. You know, everything about 2020 was interesting slash horrifying. Right. Mm. And everybody was looking for like, what's an interesting story to tell? Everybody's at home. Um, I started getting phone calls from radio stations and TV stations in, you know, elsewhere in the state. Uh, And then that started mushrooming to, you know, other locations as people began sharing my content uh, farther and wider on the Internet. Mm. Okay, so that happened, and was it like a meteoric curve in 2020, or has it just been something that's been building for the last three years? The 2020 election was a huge Mm. catalyst for what was happening, and so was January 6th, right? Like, those two events had caused so much confusion, and so nobody, no matter who you voted for, zero people were like, well, that went well. (laughs) Yes, that's true. Like, nobody was like, this was normal. Um, so, uh, everybody had questions about what was, what in the heck is going on here? Um, you know, just the number of, uh, court cases that had been filed and what actually could happen. People were like, what could happen? That was really one of the big questions that people had. Um, so that was a, that was a huge, um, catalyst. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. The 2020 election and, and January 6th. When did you flip the switch and what was in your decision-making to flip the switch? Because I believe I read you, this is an Atlantic article, I think, that you sold the yarn business, right? You've said that. Mm -hmm. When did you decide, I'm going all in and this is what I'm doing with my life? Mm. That was a slow realization 
You know, my mm-hmm. husband did get a kidney transplant in in August of 2020. So the height height of the pandemic, my children were not even allowed to like go see him in the hospital. You know, like my how's, mom. How's he doing now? He's doing great. He's doing great now. Oh. Yes. That's amazing. Yes, he is doing great. He had a fantastic outcome. My mom donated one of her kidneys to a stranger so he could get one from a stranger. Um, and by the way, the person who, the stranger that donated him a kidney is what they call a good Samaritan donor, yeah. where he did not, the person who donated the kidney did not have a speci- an intended recipient in mind. He was an electrician from Texas in his 20s who was listening to a podcast at work wow. while he was working in a hospital on some kind of prog- project, a construction project in a hospital, heard a podcast about kidney donation and thought to himself, I should look into that and uh, and did. And on his lunch break, made a phone call. So that's the power of podcasts, right? Like literally <laughs> out there saving people's lives. Um, so, he, But my husband's doing great. He had a fantastic outcome. Oh, um, that's so good. Yeah, yeah. So that happened. That happened. Uh-huh. Um, and I would say that it was probably early in, um, early to mid 2021, after I had mm. been doing this for um, maybe six to eight months, that I realized that people wanted to do things like sign up for a workshop, join a book club, things of that nature that would allow me to continue to do this work full time. Um, mm. and that, you know, that realization, I, I had no idea that this was a, a business that I could start. It never occurred to me that it would be a business that I could start. Um, but it turns out it was, mm. um, and it's been a, it's a very gratifying business to run because you see such a broad cross section of people who tell you regularly, like this, this actually makes a difference in my life. Well, and it is difficult to build a business on Instagram as anybody mm-hmm. who has tried has figured out. You know, YouTube's mm-hmm. a little bit easier, but again, the algorithm changes and you could be dead by Tuesday, you know, in terms of audience size, et cetera, et cetera. So you were able to hobble together some other ways or put together some other ways mm-hmm. that you could raise the revenue to do what you feel called to do, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have raving fans, governors, as they <laughs> call them. That's right. right? Governors. Right. Who came up with that? Did you come up with that? Did they dub themselves that? No, they came up with that themselves. The, they had been t- telling me, like, we need a name for the people. Mm. You know, like Taylor Swift's fans are Swifties, Swifties. you know, like, mm-hmm. ev- like the good communities have an identity for themselves. So they were telling me like we need an we need a name. What do you wanna what do you wanna call us? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> like this is not my I don't I don't this is not my wheelhouse. Uh so I I sort of, you know, opened it to suggestions and that was the name that won. And um I was recently speaking at an event at the Bush Library in Dallas and uh backstage President Bush was like, "What do y'all call yourselves?" Governors, and you could tell that that really amused him. He got his like little smirky smirk on his face and was like, "That's that's funny." Like I like that. Yeah, <laughs> that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this is taking you to all kinds of places. But mm-hmm. what I want to do, I really want to focus in because so many, so many of the people listening to the show have got problems with an audience that is so divided. Mm-hmm. Um, pastors have had half their church walk out. Yeah. Uh, 
meaningful percentage of people just angry letters. You said too much. You said too little. You were too pro-mask, too anti-mask, too this, too that, too left, too right, too, you know, and it doesn't matter. We've we've gotten so much mail over the last few years. doesn't matter what you've done. Uh, it's never good enough. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I had uh, Chris Bale from Duke University on. He wrote a great book called The Social Media Prism. He makes the argument, and this is based on research, that about 6% of the people online generate 72 or 73% of the divisive comments. Mm. And his Mm. argument is most people are somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. What has your experience been of that? Do you Mm. see that, that it's a small fringe of extremists Mm -hmm. or is there a lot of extremism across America? What what do you, what's Mm. your experience Mm. or take on that? Sure. I totally agree with that, that it's the, Mm. a very, very vocal extreme minority a vocal yeah. extreme minority who they're they're the groups that are sending you the death threats. They're the people that are um, making the comments on your you know following you religiously on social media for the purpose of making negative comments. That that's mm. truly it seems like that's their purpose because when you have something great to share where you're like we rescued eleven kittens from a burning house, they have nothing to say. Right. Like there mm-hmm, is no mm-hmm. like great, great job feeding the homeless this week. It yeah. is entirely looking for an opportunity to make a negative comment. And there's there's quite a bit of research about why people enjoy doing that, why a small subset of the population enjoys it. It is it mm. is not just a thing where they're like, I um, I have nothing better to do with my time. No, no. It is a hobby. It is something that they enjoy doing. So it's a small subset of people who enjoy that hobby. And uh, the rest of the people, it seems like, feel like they're at their mercy. Like you, you mm. are, you are, you're wrecking it for the rest of us. We're just out here trying to have a nice time. Like we're just out here trying to go to a picnic and wave at people as we, as they uh, drive down the street. And you're making it really, really difficult for us to do that. So I hear that exact sentiment uh, times a thousand. If I do mm. like put up a little Instagram poll about you know like how do you feel about X, Y, or Z. Roughly 80% of people identify as somewhere, you know, in the middle of these extremes. And it is these tiny fringe margins that whose voices, because of things like algorithms, again, as you mentioned, whose voices um, become um, disproportionately amplified. Disproportionately amplified. 25 years ago, the ability of one person to um, drown out 80% of other people was quite, quite limited. You needed to like show up at a public event and then security was going to drag you out if you were going to be disruptive, Mm -hmm. right? Now you have the ability to be disruptive with absolutely no consequences to you. And in fact, it's fun to be disruptive. Yeah. And Chris Bale makes an argument too. He says, this is sport for people. Like, you know, maybe it's a car dealer by day and Mm -hmm. he's super guy, not going to cheat you like good person, or this is someone who serves in the PTA, but when they get home and they get online, there's a a switch that flips and Mm -hmm. they just become this radical, angry persona. Now there are some people I'm sure who never make it out of their basement, et cetera, and don't see daylight who enjoy this, but these are otherwise engaged people. Yeah. Um, I imagine you've had your share of trolls, if you want to call them, or extremists, uh, take some good shots at you 
Has that mm-hmm. happened over the oh, years? Of course. Of course. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's let's get the Sharon playbook on how you deal with trolls, angry people, and extremists. Mm. Well, again, I go back to my uh, number one rule, which is overwhelmingly not to argue with strangers on the internet. Mm. That I, if I'm looking back on my life and I'm 99, am I going to be like, gosh, I wish I argued with Bob Moore? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, gosh, I wish user 479362, man, I had a sick burn. I wish I would have used it. You know what I mean? Like that, I'm never going to look back on my life and feel like I wished I had spent more time arguing with strangers. That's not my highest wow. calling. That's not my highest calling. And guess what? It's not your highest calling either. It's not my nope. the highest use of my talent. It's not the highest use of the, what my giftings. It is not the highest use of my time. It's not arguing with strangers. Uh, it doesn't mean that I would never, ever respond to a comment, but I am never going to get involved in a back and forth of like, yeah, well, you're an idiot. Yeah, well, I think you're mm. a jerk. You know, like that is absolutely not at all what I will ever spend my time doing. Um, when you get when you've been doing this for a while, you can you can feel whether somebody is asking you something in good faith or whether they are asking to gain information that they can use to argue with you. Um, there's a huge difference between those two things. Like, I don't understand about X, Y, and Z. Um, can you explain that? That is very different. Uh, and I'm more than happy to answer those kind of questions, but that's very, mm. very different than, so then explain why X, Y, and Z is happening. You know what exactly. I mean? Like they're very different vibes. Um, a genuine seeking of information or education, happy to help you with. But if you're looking to argue, I have better things to do. Um, I mean, I I have liberally used the block and bless method of like, <laughs> peace be with you and go and, you know, like goodbye. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't wish you ill, but it's clear that this is not a, a productive use of either of our times. Well, they'll take over your channel. I they, mean, they one, one of the unspoken sort of missions of our company is to create a, a space for the good people on the internet to show mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. Let's have civil conversations. Let's yep. let's talk like we don't agree, but we're actually good friends. And most people can play inside those rules, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. How do you nuance it? So think about the leader, particularly I'm thinking of pastors, who are like, yeah, I can block the trolls on the internet. That'll mm-hmm. work. But how do I block the guy who sits in the back row or the elder who went crazy during COVID and turned out to be one of those people on the absolute extremes? Or I've heard staff members, like when you have a personal relationship mm-hmm. with somebody, mm-hmm. what are your rules of engagement for mm. that kind of conflict and yeah. disagreement? It's really challenging. And anybody who says otherwise is not actively trying to address this situation. Mm -hmm. Like if you have a rote answer where it's like, here's the 100% easy, simple solution, then you have not actually tried to confront this issue head on. This is a very, very real concern, not just for people in ministry, but for just people whose next door neighbors have a crazy flag in their yard or (laughs) who are at the, the, the bookstore and there's somebody, you know, trying to disrupt, you know, but other people trying to just check out and just trying to buy a book. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. This is a common uh, feeling amongst nearly everybody 
that I don't know how to engage with people in my real life who have seemingly gone off the deep end or whose goal is to engage me in some kind of battle or war that I don't feel is productive. What am I to do? in that scenario. And it's much more difficult in real life than it is online. Of course, you can't just block somebody uh, from showing up in your business or your uh, church Mm -hmm. or whatever it is. So assuming that you want to maintain the relationship, assuming that that is the goal that I need to mean, I need and want to maintain this relationship with this person. um, I have this, I, I approach it from the perspective of preserving the relationship is more important in this moment than winning, than scoring my points. Mm -hmm. There are many times when I know I could score against somebody. As they say, as Gen Z says, I know I could dunk on you, right? Like I absolutely know that I could score a bunch of points. Your talking points are silly. You don't know what you're talking about. The Electoral Mm. College is not a place in Washington, D.C. Do you know what I mean? Like I I absolutely could score a bunch of points on you. Mm -hmm. But if my goal is to preserve the relationship, um, the I, I keep in mind that my ability to influence you in the future for good only can happen if we maintain a relationship. If I cut you out, if I'm like, you're an idiot, you don't know what you're talking about, get out of here, my ability to influence them in the future is none. It's zero. Now, do I want the ability to influence Charles Manson? No, he belongs in prison, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like there, yeah. there are some people that are like that. Um, I don't need an ability to in- influence everybody. But if it's somebody that I know personally and I want to have that hope, that has to be um, a goal. So I make a point of trying to talk about things that we have in common, things that I know mm. are topics that are things that we can agree on. I have a neighbor who has a sign in his yard, a flag, his whole yard is full of flags. One of his <laughs> flags says something um, very, 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 very offensive. It has the F word on it. Um, and it has some, it's just, I won't repeat it, but just suffice it to say it's very offensive. And I, my, my children on a school bus go by this man's house every day, right? Like, I think it's a terrible move on his part to have all of this stuff in his yard. Um, but nevertheless, he is going to continue to be my neighbor uh, he's lived mm. in that house his entire life. It's his childhood home. He's not moving. You know what I mean? Yep. Uh, he's not moving. And neither You're am I. You're more likely to move than him. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. He's not moving. And so we have to find a way to peacefully coexist with each other. And so what we talk about are birds. That's mm. what we talk about. I, we, we, I live in the country. And I love birds, and so does he. And we have tons of birds in our neighborhood. And we talk about like, oh, I saw a pileated woodpecker on my maple tree yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, I find a, I try to find a way to connect with him about something that is not contentious about something that we have commonality on. Um, and actually now that I've lived in this house for going on two years, last week he had taken all of the flags down out of his yard, Whoa. all of the flags down out of his yard. He had a trailer in parked in front of his house where he had put all of this paraphernalia. I drove past his house. Like I crept along. I'm like, what is happening? And my husband was chatting with him and he, it's not that he had a change of heart. It's not that he um, suddenly realized the error of his ways and had a come to Jesus moment. It's that he came to the realization. It's not worth it. 
Mm. It's not worth it. And that is a huge softening of his position, right? That's a huge softening of his position. It's not worth it to have all of this stuff in my yard anymore. And if we had developed an extremely contentious relationship with each other, where I was dropping mail in his mailbox every day of like, you better get your stupid signs out of the yard or I'm going to sue you. If I had, if it had been that kind of a contentious relationship, what would he have done? Very mm-hmm. likely he would have dug in his heels, yep. right? More flags, Very, more yes, signs. More flags, worse flags. Signs mm-hmm. directed at me. Signs directed clearly, at Sharon. Clearly, there are not enough flags. That's in this right. Yard. This right. is too few flags, in fact. So when we get into that kind of a head-to-head confrontation with somebody, you have to understand that people's beliefs very often become formational in their identity. Mm. It's their they are formational to their identity. It is not just what I believe, it is who I am. And so when you are attacking somebody's beliefs, you are attacking fundamentally who they are. And that is a very, very, very uncomfortable position to put someone in. It's In fact, you can liken it to experiencing a type of physical pain even. It is a situation that the human brain really seeks to move you away from. You do not mm. want to have your identity confronted in that way. So the, really, your, ho- your true hope of change is to make the decision to change on your own. And if you want to give him um, the space to make the decision to change on his own, the person in your pew, the person at your business, your next door neighbor, he has to be able to change in a way that preserves his dignity. That is the key. He is not going to change if he cannot change in a way that preserves his dignity. I'm so glad you said that. That that's such a great answer. And I mean, neither of us is a, a clinically trained psychologist, but no. you know, some of the reading that I've looked at, and I think Chris Bale's research and others, uh, would indicate that folks like your neighbor probably don't have a rich personal life. You know, that's right. alienated, that's right. alone. That's right. Hurt. There might be estrangement. I always had a saying for years for pastors, and it's just you know, hyperbole, but I think there's truth in it. 99% of the problems in the church have nothing to do with the church. Mm -hmm. Uh, COVID aside or politics aside, when you get a really angry email about a song, a message or whatever, yeah, sometimes it might've been the song, it might've been the message. It could have been, you know, I couldn't find a parking spot on Sunday, whatever it was. But often there's a very unhappy person Mm -hmm. underneath that Mm -hmm. who's like, you are my latest victim. Or you are now the subject of my rage. Do you find that with the extremists online Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. there's not a very rich or meaningful personal life or problems? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, they're not going to tell you that. They're not going to tell you that I have generational trauma. They're not going to tell you um, my mom neglected me. They're not going to tell you that I don't have any friends. They're they're not going to say those words to you. Um, but, but the overwhelming amount of evidence that I've seen firsthand, and again, going back to some of the research you've referenced, says that this kind of behavior is largely engaged in by people with, with very, very little social capital. 
They have very few things going on elsewhere in their lives. They often do not feel a sense of fulfillment in their personal lives, family lives, or professional lives. And this is a way for them to feel a sense of satisfaction, to exert some control, to make other people afraid of them, or to make other people feel like they have power. So that lack of social capital is, I have experienced that firsthand, that this is, this is what people have. If I said something to you, um, I, I came on your podcast and started criticizing your uh, religious beliefs, whatever they are, uh, and I was like, you know who believes that? Idiots <laughs> believe that. You know what I mean? You know who? You know who thinks that that is true? People without brains. Do you know what I mean? Like if yep. I if I began attacking you in that way, would it cause you to reevaluate your religious beliefs? Carrie? No. 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 What would it make you think of me? It would make you me think you're brainless, that you're that, a problem right. and you're I'm not seeing problem. it. I'm the problem. That's right. Mm-hmm. I'm the problem in that scenario. It's not your beliefs. Your beliefs, mm-hmm. now you just want to believe it more. Because like clearly, uh, you know, the, the, this idea that these are foundational to who you are, your religious faith is foundation, foundational to who you are. It's part of who you are. It's your identity, part of your identity. Um, when someone attacks it, it's not it's not your beliefs that are problematic. It's the person who did the attacking that is problematic. So if you want to be able to maintain a relationship with somebody, that head-on attack of their foundational beliefs, whatever they are, about masks, about the government, about a song at the church, about your prices at your grocery store, whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, attacking them head-on, all it does is more deeply entrenches those beliefs within that person. Mm -hmm. It has the opposite of the intended effect. And that can be actually really infuriating sometimes when you're like, but I know for sure you're wrong. Stop believing that. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like you just want to be like, if I give you two smacks on the head, that idea will just leave your brain and you can stop believing that dumb thing. That's not how it works. I had a conversation with a neighbor like that just literally earlier this week where she was talking about a really good friend who had sort of gone to the far right. And, you know, she was not thrilled about that. And I couldn't help but thinking, but your friend, you know, she's like, how did she drink the Kool-Aid? But I'm, I was pretty sure, and we didn't get into it, that her friend thinks the same thing about her, mm-hmm. right? How did you drink the Kool-Aid? Mm-hmm. I love your idea of taking the high road. And I think that's such a good reminder. It's like, I have to be the emotionally intelligent person here in the room, even though I'm angry, even though I'm upset. And I think you're right. Sometimes you get an email. I was thinking of one we got where I had a guest on the podcast and this guest has had a little bit of controversy and somebody didn't like where they stood on a particular issue. Mm -hmm. And my assistant who looks after the public inbox says, Hey, what do I do about this one? It was like a single line, like, why did you have so-and-so on the podcast? Does this mean that you now endorse X? I'm not mm-hmm. going to mm-hmm. say who the guest is, mm-hmm. et cetera. And I looked at that and I'm like, you know what? That gun is loaded. Like, first of all, I'm very comfortable having guests on this show that I don't 100% align with and agree with. Sure. No, no problem. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I don't know that I disagree with this person. Third, I think you have a misrepresentation of his issue because he's been misrepresented in the press. But if I get into that, Like, it's just a loaded gun. So we ignored it. And sure enough, that email came in every other day, 10 times or more. And we just Mm. didn't answer. 
because, Mm -hmm. you know, the bomb was lit and we weren't going Mm -hmm. to step into the shrapnels. But I think there's a difference between that and someone you have a relationship with. Any further comments on that? Like, do you see Mm. that as a loaded gun when Mm, you get an email like that? Yeah. Yeah, I I have exercised the same strategy of like trying to game out what is the best possible outcome of this conversation that this person wants to engage me in, of this fight that they're inviting me to. What's the best Mm -hmm. possible outcome? One of us has to lose in this fight. And right. guess what? It ain't going to be me. <laughs> and so uh, it's it's ultimately to me, again, I always try to remind myself, is this my highest calling? Is it to engage with anonymous emailers, commenters, DMers? Is that what, is that, am I going to wish that I had spent more of my one wild and precious <laughs> life responding to mean tweets? Mm-hmm. And I've, I've arrived at the answer of no. That there are better things I could do with my time than respond to mean messages. So one of the the amazing things about your platform is you have had people on the left and on the right change their mind. Change Mm. their mind about gun control, change their mind about abortion, change their mind about mask policies, the Supreme Court, etc. Like major, major issues. This And it's not a rare occurrence. Can Mm. you explain... Some of that dynamic and what happens. Mm. Mm. I really do think it goes back to this idea that people can only change when they want to and when they feel Mm. safe to change. When you are attacking someone's identity, they don't feel safe to change. That's not a safe environment. Mm. And your brain, of course, is hardwired to want to keep you safe. And it's hardwired to want to... to to make snap judgments about things. Your brain doesn't want to have to do, conduct a, a, a Nexus Lexus search every time you're like, is it a wolf? It led me, like, how should I run? Like, le- how many hairs does it have? Like, you, you don't have 20 minutes to evaluate every danger to you. Your brain wants to make a snap judgment of like, that is a wolf, get out of here. Right? So your brain perceives other scenarios as dangerous as well. Uh, anything that is foundational to your identity, if you want your identity, somebody wants your wants you to change your identity, that's dangerous. That's too much change. Your brain is trying to keep you safe. So that is, I, I try to approach conversations from the perspective of, here are some things to think about. Here are some facts about this scenario. What do you think? Mm. And that it, that's the exact scenario that I used in the classroom for many years. Um, I would much rather have a person with a really, really well-articulated opinion that runs counter to my own than somebody parrot back my own talking points. Um, mm. It's actually not that fun to talk to a parrot, right? Like they just repeat yeah. you, repeat back what you're oh, saying. That's so like good, that's not Sharon. a conversation. Yeah, that's 100%. Right, right, right. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I agree with all of that. That's not interesting to me. That's not interesting to me. I I I know that if you disagree with me and you can thoughtfully articulate a differing opinion than mine, that I have the opportunity to learn something in that scenario. That's far more interesting to me than somebody being like, that's right, times 1,000. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I, do. I mean, it's, not, it's nice to hear yeah. that's right. It I is nice once in a while. Yeah. yeah. It is nice, yeah. but it, that's not really a conversation. No. So asking no. people, what do you think? Um, and then 
creating the conditions under which people can share what they think about something uh, in in ways that um, are not an attack on another individual. This is what is missing a lot in the uh, the public uh, social media space is a way to have a conversation with somebody that is not immediately perceived as an attack. If you write on your social media, gosh, I really disagree with this bill that Congress introduced. Anyone who disagrees with you is in, even if they do it super politely, it is difficult to not immediately perceive that as an attack. It's a very difficult thing to n- to not take it as an attack, right? That's a great example. So let's talk about that. You're a leader leading a church or a business who really, and this is this has shown up again and again and again in the public square on social, who really disagrees with, you know, lockdown or no mm-hmm. lockdown or uh, a Supreme Court ruling or you know, pick your issue. We got an election coming up next year. So there'll be lots of things to disagree on. And they really want to implore the people who follow them and they have a strong opinion. How would you phrase it in a way that Democrats and Republicans and independents can all come together and agree? Or is that just a lost cause? Like, how do you phrase it in a way that doesn't trigger that defensiveness and that anger and that vitriol in people? Mm. Well, one of the ways that I do that is by being a trusted intermediary. Um, It's, you know, like, do you just let people just say, okay, guys, here's the rules. Everyone be nice. And then let everybody go free in a room and duke it out. Like, it's going to quickly devolve into this, right? It's going to quickly devolve into headbutting. Um, But I have spent a lot of years uh, gaining, earning the trust of the people in my community, and I will, I will ask them, if you're a Republican, what are your thoughts about Congress right now? And I will give only Republicans a chance to respond to that question. Nobody else is allowed to say anything. If you are a Democrat, what are your thoughts about this? No one's allowed to say anything. And what that does is it allows people to share their thoughts without directly responding to someone else's comment, because that's where the attacks come, right? If I'm like, Carrie, I disagree with you on that. That feels like an attack. But if somebody has a chance to say what they have to say, okay, you had your turn. Uh, Okay, Democrats, what are your thoughts about Congress right now? Democrats have a chance to share their thing. It's not a back and forth argument then. But people are mm. able to articulate their positions without the back and forth. Hmm. How do you decide? Because for the most part, you keep your personal views fairly close to your chest. Is mm-hmm. that fair? Mm-hmm. You don't yeah. come out with yeah. an opinion on everything. It's not. No. You're not the uh, talk show circuit where or news show circuit where it's like, and now we're outraged about. Blah, blah, blah. That's, That's right. not your mo. Mm-hmm. But you do have opinions. You know, you talk, for example, about. Um, Vladimir Putin, mm-hmm. you know, you're very mm-hmm. upset about mm-hmm. Vladimir Putin, mm-hmm. which I totally understand, mm-hmm. but there are people in the world. I mean, if you look at those maps, like there are countries that support Putin and yeah. see the West as enemies. And so there's mm-hmm. even diversity of opinion on that. Um, you were public about the fact that the 2020 election was not stolen. Mm-hmm. Correct. That's right. Or you've talked about mass shootings and gun control as well and taken mm-hmm. a position on that. Uh, Putin aside, 
the 2020 election was a hotly contested issue, whether it was totally. stolen or not. And so is gun control. I mean, you want to get people angry? Let's talk about gun control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When and how do you decide mm. whether you weigh in on an issue? Yeah. That's a great question. And there, there is not one formula that I can give people that says you mm. should only weigh in under the following circumstances. <laughs> um, to me, you know, when I'm talking about gun control, um, this is not about like, should people be able to have a gun in their home? This is not about, should you be able to protect yourself in your home? This is not about, should you have a gun to go deer hunting with? Those are very, very different scenarios than shooting nine-year-olds in a classroom. Um, those are two different scenarios. You having a gun in your home for home protection, I view as very, very different than somebody being able to easily buy um, the the weapons that make it efficient to kill large numbers of children in a, in a school. And of course, gun, you know, people say guns don't kill people, people kill people. The guns are a tool to make it easy for people to kill large numbers of people in a short period of time. That's what it is. It's a tool. Um, and so we regulate all kinds of other tools that people can use or not use um, without infringing on their personal right to uh, own a weapon for their, for their own personal use at home. Those, those are two different scenarios in my mind. So because I am a longtime teacher— um, anything related to teaching and schools is is going to be something that I care deeply about. It's going to be something that I don't feel that we can afford to be silent on. Um, there should be nobody who's like, let's make it easier to shoot children in schools. There should be nobody who says that, right? Uh, again, regardless on how we might disagree on how to get there, but we should all agree on the final outcome of it should be more difficult to shoot children and teachers in school buildings, just period. It should be harder to walk into a bank and kill the kill your coworkers who did nothing to you. It should be harder to do those things, not more easy. So um, where I feel like we can have a conversation is in a really good faith effort to discuss what are the things we can do to make it more difficult for that to happen. Where I don't have a lot of patience is for people who are who have no good faith effort to have a conversation about that, to whom they say all conversation is off the table. Right. All conversation is off the table on this topic because uh, we have the Second Amendment. Well, again, mm -hmm. as a person who's spent a long time studying the Constitution, we have not always interpreted the Second Amendment as we do now. Uh, there's been a wide variety of interpretations about the Second Amendment. We won't get into that here and now. But I, there must be a conversation about protecting our children in schools. Mm -hmm. um, so to you, is, that was just a very personal issue. You thought, yep, totally. I'm, I'm going out there. I, I, absolutely. Um, having worked in schools for so long as a parent, yeah. um, I, I feel like, you know, and I know a lot of people agree with me on this, that there are very common sense things we can do. Um, right. That eight, oh, over 80% of Americans agree with things like uh, universal background checks. Mm. I'm not, you know what I mean? Like there's there's no reason that a person who uh, has a long history of domestic violence needs to get a gun in the next one hour. 
You know what I mean? So again, yeah. And one of those things, because I've seen those debates rage on my social channels. And again, it's people throwing darts at each other, Mm -hmm. et cetera, and pulling out slogans like guns don't kill people, people kill Mm -hmm. people. But what you're trying to do is you're saying 80% of America is here and there's a tiny splinter on each side Mm -hmm. that's hijacking the dialogue. Let's get this dialogue back. Mm -hmm. So, okay, that's gun control. Let's talk about the allegation that the 2020 election was stolen. Mm. What made you decide to draw a line in the sand and say, actually, it wasn't? Which Mm. I know some listeners will say, but it was, Mm -hmm. you know? So Mm -hmm. what made that an issue that you thought, yeah, worth cashing in some chips and drawing Mm. a line in the Mm. sand on that one? Well, the first thing is that I really waited to draw a conclusion until literally all of the evidence had come out until every court case was decided, until every single possible avenue had been exhausted. Um, I did not want to be a person who rushed to judgment and was like, absolutely not. You guys just listen to me. This Don't even think about that. Um, that there's a lack of credibility in a failure to listen to evidence. If you don't listen to all the evidence, it's difficult to say that you are credible, right? So listening to the evidence is an important component of this. So I did. I re- I truly and honestly listened to all of the evidence. I followed it very carefully. I'm uh, well-versed in how the legal system works, uh, about the different types of challenges that that were being presented in court, what was and was not being said in court, um, all, all the things of that nature. And what I did mm. was um, just report factually on here's what was said in court today. Here is the challenge that was presented to the judge. Here's what the judge said in response. And then instead of saying, um, you know, X, Y, and Z made the following idiotic statements, I I will literally just quote what they said. Here's what was said. Here's what the judge said, period. That's that's all you, you know, like you're free to make your own decision about that. Um, and whether or not somebody thinks the election was stolen, um, we have a we have something in a in a democratic republic called the rule of law and the rule of law says that everybody has to follow the laws including leaders and there's a legal process that we go through to determine whether or not um there is a sufficient amount of evidence to determine if if a law has been broken so regardless of whether your personal feelings are about something um there there has not been any demonstrated evidence of things like widespread fraud that meet our legal definitions, right? That meet our legal de- our legal standards of evidence for these types of things. Um, you cannot build pride on a lie, right? Like if you mm. want to have, I I, be, I I love the United States. I'm not a United States hater. I'm very proud of my country. I love being an American. I want America to be a city on a hill. And you can't build pride on a lie. You have to be honest about what what the evidence actually says. Uh, and so to me, it's just being, that is having integrity, is being honest about what, what regardless of if you like the outcome or not, it's being having the integrity to, to tell the truth. So I want to go back to something you said earlier, which is, the, and this is a bit of a paraphrase, but there is quite the fusion going on in our culture today between your opinion, your politics, your moral status as a person, your identity, your theology, they're all fused into one right now. How did that happen? 
Has it always been that way? And how do you start to disentangle it? It seems like you're having some success in helping people disentangle some of those, that fusion. Mm-hmm. People have always been tribal, right? Like that is, that mm-hmm. is human mm-hmm. nature. People have True. always been tribal. That's not new. Um, tribes are how we stay safe. People are naturally groupish. They naturally want to be part of a group, an in-group or an out-group. If you were alone on the savannah, you were soon dead, right? Mm -hmm. So being Mm -hmm. groupish benefits humankind. So this idea that our identity um, is is tied up in our beliefs and that we want to be over here with this group who believes the same things that we do, that is not at all new. That is, that's endemic to humankind. Now, the nature of groups has changed dramatically, Hmm. right? We used to belong to groups of our kinfolk. We used to belong to groups of our, of our village. We used to belong to, you know, like what we might know today is an ethnic group, uh, although they might've had a different term for it. Um, We, we had different types of identities that we uh, belonged to and that I, those identities were very important for our survival. In fact, the the more the the evidence shows that the more strong someone a group's identity was, the more successful they tended to be. Groups that had loose identities were less successful. So, I think understanding human nature is an important component of talking about these things. That um, mm. to ask somebody to abandon what your brain naturally wants to do is asking them for, it's a big ask. It's a big ask. Um, And it is, it's a little bit like asking people to like never ever eat their favorite food. You're like, but I love it. But I love it. Never, never again. I can't ever have the pizza again. It's it's a big ask to ask them to give up Uh something that is something that is, that they really, really love. So that's something to realize, I, I feel. Another Mm -hmm. thing, though, is understanding the nature of how groups have changed over time, that we now belong to so many different groups. We are no longer just kinfolk, or uh, we are no longer just uh, members of a a tribe or members Mm. of of a village. We now have a myriad of identities that make up who we are. We have, you know, do you have an R or a D behind your name? Do you live in the North or the South? What race do you belong to? What's your socioeconomic status? Did, are you well-educated or not? Do you like the office or not? Right? Like, there's, <laughs> well, there's, there's only one answer to that. <laughs> yeah, but, there's a million yeah. different ways to engage with your identity now. Right. And um, some of those are less helpful than others. Some of those are less helpful than others. And helping people understand what's helpful and what's not helpful, I think, is the, that's really the million-dollar question. You know, it is interesting. I've heard a number of, like, non-Christian, atheist or agnostic commentators, writers, thought leaders 
say they are growing increasingly alarmed at the decline of the church, not because of a faith perspective, but because of the social glue Mm -hmm. that congregations used to play and religious life used to play, whether that's Jewish or Christian or other faiths in American life. Mm -hmm. And I I love your argument around tribal identity because everyone says tribalism, but you're right, we're tribal people and the tribes have now shifted in not a particularly healthy direction, mm-hmm. particularly when it's disembodied. When I'm really talking to your avatar, when I'm really talking to your username, you and I aren't having a real conversation like we are right now, most of the time in that tribal warfare. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to mix it up. Last couple of questions mm-hmm. for you. I was wondering whether you have any thoughts about how AI and deep fakes might impact our dialogue online. We're going through a huge transformation Mm -hmm. right now. And we haven't really had an election with AI yet, but we're heading into one where the deep fakes, if you're into studying even for five minutes on deep fake videos, they're so convincing. They really Um, are. We've had troll farms interfere with past elections, but we haven't had AI Mm -hmm. write convincing deceptive ads Mm -hmm. for candidates that they want to see defeated or elected. Any thoughts on what might happen over the next year or two Mm. with deepfakes and AIs? I don't know a single person who is educated on this topic who is like, it's going to be fine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know yeah. a single person. And sometimes I get invited to to attend these groups or be part of panels or whatever with people who uh who are some of the orig- the pioneers of AI. So I have had mm. had the opportunity to talk to people not just who have opinions on AI but who like invented it. Invented you know what it, I mean? Yeah. Who invented yeah, it? I do. Really understand the the repercussions of the of this topic. AI has a tremendous amount of potential, tremendous amount of potential, uh, especially in the in the realm of like medical diagnostics. There's a, a variety of things. You know, the some of the inventors of AI say that once we AI reaches its potential, it could mean the end of disease as we know it. Yeah, um, like cancer actually yes. gets cured. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, AI has tremendous potential, potential, but it also has a tremendous ability um, to harm. And uh, as we have encountered um, over the last few years, misinformation has become um, more and more difficult to spot. It's become more and more difficult to combat, and deep fakes are going to continue to add uh, to that problem. This is an area... Uh, that even the pioneers of AI, even even the Googles and the you know um, OpenAI, are literally going to Congress and saying, "Please regulate us. Please mm-hmm. regulate us. We need regulations that we will all follow." Um, this is not a even the people who are profiting off of this are like, "We need you to step in here." Because yeah, yeah. what will happen if we just decide to pull back the reins and be like, listen, that's unsafe. We're not going to do that. Everybody else will just continue moving ahead. And yeah, the bad ahead. actors are going to yeah, keep moving. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. The bad They're actors are going to win. That's mm-hmm. right. So we need regulation uh, to bring everybody uh, into line simultaneously. So wow. this, is, um, this is a great example of why... The current type of rhetoric, political rhetoric that is happening in the United States, is a danger to national security. It is because 
Congress has become so dysfunctional that they cannot get meaningful legislation for the United States passed, by and large. They are too busy arguing over their mean tweets and their press conferences and their uh, viral dunk moments and filling their coffers with uh, campaign re-election funds that they are not willing and able to engage in meaningful uh, dialogues and meaningful legislation about things that are actually very pressing, very pressing matters. I, I hear you. You know, I don't know how familiar you are with Doris Kieran's Goodwin's work, yes. but mm-hmm. yeah, her book. I mean, she says LBJ, Lyndon B. Johnson was one of the last people who really did a great job of crossing the aisle and saying, we need to work together on this. Mm-hmm. And that's how he got the Great Society passed. And I think it was in the Clinton era when Congress people stopped living in Washington and they started living more. They had an apartment there, but they were more based in their constituencies. And that meant that they weren't going to the same church services. They weren't going to the ball game together. They weren't in the same restaurants. And that same thing that we now see years later on, on social media, where we're dealing with disembodied people, you become a caricature mm-hmm. of, you don't see the person. Yeah, it's, it's, it's rather frightening if you really think about Mm -hmm. where we could be heading. And that's why I'm so grateful for your voice. So a super practical question to wrap it up. Mm -hmm. People are going to summer barbecues and eventually Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And they're going to have to meet their family members, some of whom might be like your neighbor who might have a lot of flags in their yard, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I think you've partially answered this question already, but I want to take one more crack. On the very practical level, when you're sitting at the dock on a beautiful day by a lake this summer, having a barbecue, and someone says, so about the Democrats or about the Republicans, and just starts going down that road, Mm. what is your advice in real life Mm. for people who would rather find another path Mm. to talk about things? The first thing is know thyself. Uh, Understand Mm. what is your tolerance for being able to hear things about your own political party that are Mm. criticisms. I Mm. I don't have a political party. I personally think political parties are dumb. I would like to see either them be gotten rid of or have a whole bunch more of them. I have zero allegiance to any political party. So to me, I can listen to bad stuff about Democrats and Republicans all day and be like, (laughs) that is correct. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I I have a high tolerance for that, but many people tell me that they don't. And so I when I say that, know thyself, know what your own tolerance level is. I I am somebody who can tolerate a lot of it. You might not be. And so in that case, if you're like, listen, I'm not going to be able to have this conversation without getting real heated. I'm not going to be able to do it. I've I've two two thoughts for you. One is if you know your uncle is going to be there and he's going to he's going to be wearing his, you know, paraphernalia that has f word yes, on it yes, and whatever, yes, you know. Fair enough. Um, yeah. he's going to be wearing his you know this is going to come up with when he's there. One thing you can do is send a text message to him or to your family and be like, "FYI, so excited to see you. 4th of July, favorite holiday." Love it. Let's have let's eat some hot dogs. Can't wait to give you some hugs. Uh, but I personally am not going to be uh, taking part in any co- conversations about politics. Just so you know. But I love you, and I'm excited to see you. Um, mm-hmm. Telling people up front what you are not going to do. It, it, first of all, it's setting a boundary. 
boundaries are yeah. not about telling other people what they're going to do. It's telling other people what you're going to do and what you will mm. accept. And just say, without in a, at a time when there's no confrontation, reiterate how excited you are to see them. It's the best time of the year. Kids are going swimming, whatever it is. Just say, I am not going to do politics this summer, com- political conversations, just because I really want to have a great, great time. Um, but I can't wait to see you and eat some ice cream. That mm. feels a lot different to people than in the moment being like, Bob, why can you never shut up about this topic? Yeah. You know what I mean? That feels And it's really not asking different. them to stop. That's right. It's saying, I'm not going to I'm play. not going to do that. Um, and if mm. you say it in a way that seems like upbeat, so excited to see you, love you guys, this, but you know, like it doesn't seem confrontational in the same way of like, stop talking to me about this. Or I am so tired of all of our family functions being hijacked by. That's right. Mm -hmm. Why is everybody so dysfunctional? (laughs) Because I'm not. Because I'm I'm perfect and the rest of y'all are crazy. Um, You know what I mean? It just feels really different than than something else. And then if Bob wants to have a conversation with Cindy when you're not there, then they can go ahead and do that. You're not dictating to them what you do, what they do in your Mm -hmm. absence, right? Um, So that's one thing. And the other thing is if somebody is real, this has happened to me a number of times where somebody Mm. is really trying to um, push my button or get my goat on something. um, I, there's a few little phrases that I like to use. One is, one is some people like him. You know, like they're talking about a politician that you really, really dislike, whoever that is. Some people like him. And that just, that like deflects the conversation of like, what are you going to say about that? I mean, that's just true. Some people Mm -hmm. like him. Some Mm -hmm. people love her. Uh, And it allows you to say like, you're responding to what they're saying without engaging in furthering the conversation. Some people love her. She's, yeah, Mm -hmm. uh, I hear that. Some people love her. Uh, and it it allows you to kind of backtrack without necessarily causing this big clash. Hmm. You, do you know what I'm saying? Hmm. Some people love that. Um, or, you know, another phrase is something like, I know, I know there's so much going on right now, isn't there? Uh, that, yeah. that, that's a true statement. <laughs> that's a true statement. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to pivot to the summer vacation. We're going to pivot yeah. to the ice cream. We're going to pivot to like, are you taking any trips this summer? Do you, have you seen uh-huh. any pileated woodpeckers? Like what's, <laughs> what's, what's going, what's going on with your truck? I heard that wasn't, that was like broken down last time I saw you. You know what I mean? Huh? We're going to pivot yep. from so much going on. I hear you. That's great advice. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Last question before we get to your channels. If you could snap your fingers and change one thing that you think would help change the national dialogue, mm. what would that be? Mm. Just like, boom, you yep. know, in our magical world, yep. what is the one thing that you think could make a disproportionate impact? Mm. It's easy. A constitutional amendment that changes the way elect- elections run in the United States. Um, oh. Number one, it would eliminate uh, money in politics. 80 plus percent of Americans do not think that politics should be ruled by money, but they are. Uh, most people don't want billionaires controlling the political system, but they do. But they do. Uh, sometimes. Uh, so it would change the way elections are funded. I, I would shorten the amount of time that somebody has to run for office. I yes. Listen, 
I have I have been doing this my whole life and I cannot handle it anymore. You know what I mean? Like if I'm tired of it, like it is it is May of 2023. We have a whole year and a half of this. I don't need that. Nobody needs that much time. Nobody needs a year and a half to decide who to vote for. No other countries take a year and a half to campaign. For oh, no, we're six office. weeks in Canada. Zero it's other. like, yes, it's crazy. Yes. It's like, oh, there's an election. You're voting in four to six weeks. It's like, all right. And here are the national party leaders. Here's the candidates. Yes. Go. Yes. And it's all over with. I feel like America, I get it. America's a large and diverse country. Okay. Physically mm. large, population large, you know, 10 times as big as Canada in terms of population. Sure. But so I feel like, okay, if we had three months, if you had 12 weeks to crisscross this country, appear at all the things you want to do, go to all the debates, make all the speeches, I can make up my mind in 12 weeks. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's how Mm -hmm. much time I need. I need, I probably need less than that, frankly. But the American public can make up their mind in 12 weeks because literally every other democracy in the world does not listen to this for 20 months. It, it's ridiculous. There is no concept in which the framers envisioned a 20-month election cycle. The yeah. idea that it takes a billion plus dollars to get elected president, what a waste. What yeah. a waste. You know what I mean? Like, we could spend that money. We spent a billion dollars on a lot. Each, a billion dollars each, Carrie, is how much they, they spent over, Trump and Biden spent over a billion dollars each trying to win the 2020 election. Like that is a lot of hungry mouths that we could feed. That's a lot of mm-hmm. schools we can build. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of bridges we can reconstruct. We don't need to spend $2 billion on 20 months uh, trying to trying to insult each other because that's what it, what it, I don't need to listen to 20 months of people telling me why so-and-so is bad. I'm done with that. Mm. I'm not interested in that anymore. Uh, it would eliminate gerrymandering, you know, where you're drawing political mm-hmm. boundaries for the sake of yeah, changing uh, the electrical game. map. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So uh, that would be my one thing is if if oh. we could do that, the entire political landscape of the United States would change overnight. Overnight. Boy, you know, I did not expect that. And I love that answer. That's mm-hmm. fantastic. Well, Sharon... Maybe we'll have you back when your book comes out. I'm very excited to read that next year. Thank you for your voice. Thank you for being one of the sane people out there on the internet and uh, really creating the kind of dialogue I think most of us really want to have. And for some incredibly practical, implementable advice on today's podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Great. Oh, and um, channels. Um, just tell us where we can find you on the internet. Mm. You can find me on Instagram at Sharon Says So. My website is just my name, SharonMcMahon.com. And then my podcast is Here's Where It Gets Interesting. And you can listen to that wherever you get podcasts. And it does get interesting. Mm-hmm. Sharon, thank you. Mm, thank you. Well, I hope you found that a great dose of common sense and hopefully really refreshing. You can get a lot more, including transcripts, absolutely free, some show notes as well, over at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 591. Or you can find us on YouTube too. Got a growing YouTube presence and we recorded this one on YouTube as well. 
Today's episode is brought to you by On The Rise. Check it out. I've got the On The Rise newsletter every Friday, easy to subscribe, and hopefully it really helps you. Go to ontherisenewsletter.com. And by Glue, you can go to get.glue.us slash mistakes to get their free article on how to stop making mistakes with new people who visit your church. And Glue is spelled G-L-O-O, get.glue.us slash mistakes. Well, we got a bunch of new episodes coming up. I'm very excited. Philip Yancey is going to come back. Russell Moore, we've got John Christ, Michael Todd, Judah and Chelsea Smith, and a whole lot more coming up on the podcast. And uh, next time, it's Peter Greer and Chris Horst on the bad math of scarcity thinking, envy, and unhealthy competition in ministry and leadership. Here's an excerpt. But I think as we looked at Mission Drift, we recognized that we actually missed out on a really important one. And it was uh, the benefit of this laser focused on mission. The benefit of having that mission, when you know who you are, when you know what you're about, when you know what your organization is actively pursuing, you then start to look at other organizations and say, well, how do we partner together with them so that we can accomplish that mission better? How do we stay in our area of expertise, our area of focus, but then to be radically open-handed when we realize the mission that we are ultimately all about has got to be beyond just the work that we are doing. And I like how Simon Sinek in the uh, Infinite Game, he really talks about the same idea that when we think about just what's in it for us, that really is finite thinking. Uh, When he thinks about what is best for all of us, that's where movements happen. That's where there is an excitement. That's when there is real significant change that happens within a sector or industry. That's coming up next time on the podcast. Man, I'm so excited. Oh, I forgot to mention, Arthur Brooks is also coming up. Man, I've told so many people about Arthur's books and, uh, well, really made a big impact on me as well. So before we go, one more thing for you. I would love for you to check out some other podcasts. You hear this little stinger at the beginning of our show, The Art of Leadership Network. She does it a lot better than me. Well, there's a bunch of shows in the network that we started. You can hear conversations and leadership advice from people like Adam Weber, Christopher Cook, and Jenny Katrin. Just follow the Art of Leadership Network on Instagram, and you'll always know where to find the leadership conversations you need. So check it out on Insta. Go to the Art of Leadership Network on Instagram, and we'll see you there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that what we covered today is going to help you identify and break a growth barrier you're facing. And we'll catch you on the next episode. 